Luke chapter 22. Let us stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. Let us now give our attention to the reading of God's word. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill Jesus, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray Jesus unto them in the absence of the multitude. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we do come this morning and plead for thy mercy and blessing upon this assembly. Lord, we confess that our ears are dull of hearing, that our hearts are often hard and stubborn to the things of thy word. But we plead, O Lord, that thou would send refreshment, revival from heaven, that thou would send thy spirit upon us, that we might receive that word that thou wouldst work that word in the hearts of those sitting here this morning. We pray, O Lord, that thy word, like a sword, would cut and divide both joint and marrow, that thou wouldst do a great work in our midst. O Lord, bless this servant who stands before thee. Grant unto me unction and power this morning, that I might proclaim thy word. For we ask this in Jesus' name. And for his sake, amen. Please be seated. Well, have you ever had the experience of being rejected by a friend? I'm not talking about being rejected by an acquaintance or someone you've had some association with. I'm talking about a close friend. Perhaps you've experienced this kind of rejection, yet no human experience compares that rejection to what we find in our text this morning. Jesus, whom the prophet Isaiah says was a man of sorrows, one who was despised, and rejected of men came into a world that despised him. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus encountered conflict with religious leaders who despised him and sought to destroy him. But here is the greatest act of betrayal in our text this morning against the Son of Man. And as we have made our way through the Gospel of Luke, as we have seen the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the wilderness, as we've seen him in his earthly ministry, particularly early on with the miracles and the signs and wonders testifying to who he is, and we come to that final section of Jesus' passion, his coming 
death, and His glorious resurrection. And as we come to our text this morning, there are three things I want us to see as we delve into this wonderful passage of Scripture. First of all, I want us to see in this passage the Passover plot in verses 1 and 2. The occasion that takes place here after Jesus had called his disciples to watch and pray, we find that they come to that season of unleavened bread or Passover. And as they come to that great feast day, they're walking to make preparation for that. And so Luke prepares his audience for the Passover with this growing suspense. This day finally came. Much had taken place in the life of Jesus. His ministry covers much of the gospel of Luke. And yet here we come to the grand climax of the life of the Lord Jesus. The passion narratives cover the, last, the next two chapters, which detail his purpose for coming. His purpose was not to come and feed crowds of people. His purpose was not to come and work great miracles. His purpose was not to come as a great miracle worker, but his purpose was to come to suffer, to die, and to give his life as a ransom. For many. And so Jesus is building up to that, and so we see this desire to prepare for the Passover meal. But in Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14, we see the parallel accounts to what takes place here. A little different arrangement, all under the Sovereign purpose of God. But in Matthew 26, verse 1, it tells us it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, You know that after two days is the feast of Passover, and the Son of Man is to be betrayed and crucified. So in two days... Matthew says they will celebrate the Passover meal. And so there's that preparation there, even in the Gospel of Matthew. But in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 14, in verse 1, see this similar beginning there in Mark's account. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might take Jesus by craft and put him to death. And so, we see the reference to two days prior to Passover. But Luke simply uses this phrase, the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Now, he would not have said that to a Jewish audience. They would have known what Passover was. He's writing primarily to Gentiles. 
And so Luke just simply says, the feast of unleavened bread is drawing near. Commentators, some commentators, I should preface that, make a a big issue over that. it's, It's not a big issue. But Jesus predicts his betrayal and crucifixion in the Matthew account. John chapter 12 follows with the account of Mary's anointing of Jesus. We saw that early on in Luke's gospel. But in John chapter 12, the occasion for the betrayal by Judas is seen with this scene of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus with expensive oil. And so as we see this, this is important for us in seeing in this passing incident that the feast took place yearly commemorating the exodus of Israel from Egypt. Exodus chapter 12 records this. But Passover began with the week-long feast of unleavened bread. And in that feast, an unblemished male lamb, a year old, was sacrificed. Its blood was sprinkled upon the doors of every home so that the angel of death would pass those homes where the blood was sprinkled. Passover and unleavened bread are two events mentioned here. And yet only Luke lists unleavened bread and Passover. Matthew chapter 26 verse 17 sees them as one event. And so this is the occasion. The time of Passover is two days away. And so there is the haste to make ready this Passover. But there's two things in that preparation for Passover that I think Luke brings out more than the other accounts of the Gospels. Is this betrayal of Jesus that takes place, or this arrangement to betray betray him, and then this actual physical preparation that we will see later, beginning in chapter 22, verse 7. But there's an obstacle here. The preparation, as I said, involves both. But the plot against Jesus and the Seder meal happen within days of each other. The popularity of Jesus had been growing. They didn't have to take surveys to know that. They knew that Jesus was loved by the people. They knew that even at Passover celebration, the crowds of people gathering as Jesus was there at the end of chapter 21, teaching daily in their temple, and calling the people to repentance. But the obstacle is that with the popularity of Jesus growing, the chief priests and scribes feared the people. Here in the midst of a celebration, sinister players are at work. This was a holy week, a time to celebrate the work of God among the Jewish people. And yet a plot was orchestrated 
by wicked men at work. These are holy days in Israel. And yet behind the scenes, wicked men were scheming. But what a contrast between verse 1 and verse 2. Preparation draws nigh for Passover. And then the chief priest and scribes seek how they might kill Jesus. Oh, the wicked schemes of the evil one are always at work. Even on a Sabbath morning, particularly, the evil one is working and scheming to take the word that is sown out of the hearts of men and women. But they sought other times to kill Jesus, but God's appointed time had not come. And yet the sinister, wicked schemes of men are at work. The chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill Jesus. They were looking for a convenient way. They were looking for a stealth way. They were looking for a quiet way to remove him. Because they couldn't just walk up and arrest him. They couldn't just walk up in the midst of the crowd and, and club him to death or stone him to death or whatever means they might use to, to snuff out his life. But we see the, the powers that be working behind the scenes even in the preparation of Passover. We've seen this already in Luke's account of the gospel, but we see the utter hypocrisy and pride of the chief priests and scribes. They put high honor and regard upon the feast days. They regarded this holy feast day. And yet, they forgot to see that the feast of Passover or unleavened bread called them to remove every leaven from their cupboards, from their houses. Reminder that God called the people to remove the leaven of sin from their lives. And yet, in spite of that, they are still conniving and scheming to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how wicked men still scheme. How they want to snuff out the life of Jesus. And so they will come up with all sinister plans and schemes to snuff out the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we find also the betrayal initiated. Who initiated this? Religious leaders and teachers plot to kill Jesus. The plot to kill Jesus comes from within the ecclesiastical ranks of Israel. They were blind. They were self-deceived leaders who plotted to get rid of Jesus. But who initiated this takeover? Who initiated this plot during Passover? It was Judas. 
the text tells us Judas surnamed Iscariot. There in verses 3 and 4 we see that he is the one who plots with the chief priests and scribes to remove the Lord Jesus. So who is Judas Iscariot? I think most of us are familiar with him. Judas, who came from a town called Cariot, which is near Jordan, a very small, insignificant town perhaps, but he came from a small town. And yet he left everything to follow Jesus. Luke chapter 6, is, his name is recorded as one of the twelve apostles. Luke chapter 9, he is one who is sent out to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to raise the dead, to proclaim that the kingdom of God is here. He is chosen as an apostle, as one of the twelve He walked with Jesus for three years as a disciple. He is in charge. John chapter 12 and 13 tells us that he's in charge of the money. Don't make any connections there. He's in charge of the money bag. He's in charge of the church finances. Not just a local synagogue. He's in charge of of a whole host of money. So he is the treasurer, the money guy. But the texts of the gospel accounts tell us he has an intimacy with Jesus. Notice in verse 21 of this chapter that during the Passover feast, verse 21, Behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me, on the table. They did not sit for Passover at a table like we would. They had a large banquet table and they were reclining. Almost kind of this position where they were laying with, with half their body on the table. And Jesus is there next to Judas. And here we see the intimacy of Judas and the Lord Jesus. And yet verses 46 and 47 says he's the one that betrays him. Luke shows the closeness of Judas and Jesus Jesus, and the greater danger of his betrayal. So the question is, why did he betray Jesus? Well, the text tells us something very interesting there in verse 3. The text says that he entered Satan, then entered Satan into Judas. How did Satan enter into Judas? Was he demon-possessed? He is the very one who cast out demons. What do we make of this one who is indeed entered into by Satan. Satan made a relentless assault upon the soul of Judas. 
as he makes assaults upon everyone who chooses to follow Christ. Here we see that Satan enters into Judas. The devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. We see that in John chapter 13, verse 2. When Jesus knew that the hour had come that he would depart out of this world, having loved his own, that is his disciples, he loved them unto the end. And after supper, verse 2, ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he was come from God. So John tells us that Satan had already entered into the heart of Judas when he begins to make this betrayal, this plot with the priests and the scribes. The Bible clearly states the activity of Satan. And some might say, well, Judas really didn't have much of a chance, did he? Satan entered into him. What could he have done about that? And yet Jesus, Judas was already plotting against the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus or Judas had been stealing from the money bag. He kept this sin secret. And Satan entered into him. Oh, let us be well on guard. Jesus has already told us to be on guard, to watch and to pray. But let us be on guard that we do not leave ourselves exposed for Satan to enter in. Because Satan often enters in to the secret chambers of our souls, just as he did here. As we look at this passage of Scripture, I think it's important For us to see that the question, why did Judas Judas do it? Well, certainly it was greed. Luke and John both say that Satan entered into him. Reverend Sam Storms, a Baptist minister who I believe is now retired, gives a number of wonderful points for us to understand in this account that Satan was instrumental in the death of Jesus by stirring the heart of Judas. Oh, how often Satan stirs our hearts and agitates us to the point of us opening ourselves to him. And that's what happened here. Judas is morally responsible. We can't use the old adage, well, the devil made me do it. I couldn't help myself. He could help himself. But he had already become open 
to the tactics and schemes of the evil one. Satan doesn't gain a foothold in the lives of people who are walking in the light with Jesus. He only gains access when you open the door. Klaus Schilder, an old Dutch pastor from the early 1900s, says that it is the peculiar majesty of Jesus that he can conquer man without man first approaching him. But Satan's frailty is proved by this, that he cannot approach a soul unless that soul has first turned to him. And this is what's tragic, because we ask ourselves, how is it possible that a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just a disciple, but an apostle who would later have be an eyewitness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, how can this be? This is very strange to our ears. But Satan recruited Judas to betray Jesus. This is a mystery that is known only to God. But here's a warning that no position of Christian privilege, whether it's a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a parishioner, is immune from the temptations of Satan and the fall. John Bunyan says that the way to hell, that there is a way to hell from the very gate of heaven. John Calvin makes this point about this entering in to, Satan entering into Judas. Calvin says that though Satan drives us every day to crime and reigns in us when he hurries us into a court course of extraordinary wickedness, yet he is said to enter in to the reprobate when he takes possession of all of their senses and overthrows the fear of God, extinguishes the light of reason, and destroys every feeling of shame. Calvin nails it on the head, and Calvin and others, I think, are right in proposing that Judas was demon-possessed. Sam Storms says that Judas was reprobate. Who are the reprobate? We'll go back to Romans 9 and particularly, and you will see that out of one lump of clay, God has designed to show mercy unto some and to harden the hearts of others. And so the reprobate are the non-elect, those whom God has not shown favor to. And there in John chapter 13, verses 10 and 11, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, He that is washed needeth not, needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are all clean, 
but not all. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, Ye are not all clean. And yet Jesus recognizes that even in the failure of Peter that we will see later, Peter was clean. But here the text recognizes that Judas was not clean, that his heart was not right before God. Oh, reprobates can grow up within the church so easily. Reprobates can make professions of faith. Reprobates can even bring their children to the baptismal fount. Reprobates can even apply to seminaries. Reprobates can even pastor churches and walk for a season. And this is a difficult thing for us. But oh, how deceptive Satan is with his lies and his schemes. We've seen how Satan in the garden tempted Adam and Eve to fall into sin. We see how man is blind to the things of God. As he tempted our first parents, he tempts us. Jonathan Edwards says that the devil can counterfeit all the saving operations of the Spirit of God. And here's a warning. He enters into him. This is, this is the most heinous sin you can imagine. All sin is, is despicable before a holy God, and yet this particular sin was, was heinous. But Jesus was not surprised what was in the hearts of Judas. But finally, we come to the betrayal that is contracted. And they, Jesus had communed with the chief, or Judas had communed with the chief priests and captains. The captains were those leaders over the temple. They were the ones that were involved in the security of the temple, primarily. But it says Judas communed with the priests and captains, how they might betray Jesus. And they were glad. They thought, oh yeah, we got one from among his ranks. He knows everything. He knows where the money is. He knows how much money is there. And so, not only did he commune with them, this is a peculiar thing here, that Judas communes with these men to betray Jesus. There is a, there's an official way here that this is particularly done. We don't understand all the particulars of it. But they talk together. They reason together. They were glad and covenanted to give him money. 30 pieces of silver, which was about four months' wage. They covenanted with money. And here we see that as Judas entered in, that Satan entered into the heart of Judas, the betrayal process had started. John Piper says Satan does not take innocent people captive, for there are no innocent people. 
But Satan has power when sinful passions hold sway. Young people particularly, be on guard against whatever sinful passions may hold sway on your life because those are the things that Satan will use to destroy you. Judas was a lover of money. Judas was phony. Judas was a hypocrite. And yet he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Contract was put into operation. They consented and began to seek an opportunity to destroy him. Jesus had such popular support, it was important that he be arrested when there are no crowds to cause a commotion. Oh, it's very important to understand how Satan can work in the human heart. It's beyond our understanding. And yet in the story of Judas, we find here some wonderful lessons on how we should always be on guard against Satan and against his schemes. As we consider our passage before us, Think of the wonderful things that Jonathan Edwards in his work on the wisdom of God displayed in the salvation of sinners. Even Jonathan Edwards recognizes how God uses the sinful acts of men to bring about the salvation of his people. Jonathan Edwards saw the wisdom of God displayed in his choice of the person of Christ, and the way that he was born, the way that he became our Redeemer. We see the wisdom of Christ seen in his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. A French man in the 1700s who was not a reformer, this was after the time of the Reformation, Pasquier Quesnel, on verse 5 in his commentary on the Gospels, says, And it is the desire of earthly riches which generally leaves open the hearts of ecclesiastical leaders to the devil, as it did of Judas. They deliver up the key of their hearts when they deliver themselves to this position. And oftentimes we look at surface sin and we think, oh, that's my problem. I don't have enough time to do what I should do. Or that is my problem. I'm not spending enough time with my children. Or a host of things. But our surface sins are never the problem. It's the heart issues. And for Judas it is the heart issue. Because it was not only greed. It was pride. It was not only pride. But it was rebellion. And here Judas teaches us. To be on guard. Against the subtleties. Of Satan. I always 
Go back to J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican bishop, and a number of these points, because he always brings out some wonderful truths for us to consider. And he reminds us from this section that Jesus, that many fall and fall hard after making a high profession. We see the, he says, you see the treachery of one of the disciples, one of the apostles, that he entered in, that Satan entered into him. To be tempted by Satan, he says, is bad enough. To be sifted and buffeted, led captive by him, is terrible. But when Satan enters a man and dwells in him, the man indeed becomes a child of hell. And he says, Judas Iscariot ought to be a standing beacon, a light to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who heard the Lord Jesus, who saw the miracles, who who did the work that the Lord Jesus Christ called him to do outwardly looked like all the other apostles. And yet he was suspect and unsound of heart. Here we see the beginnings of the work of Satan to defeat the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross. Satan would have delighted in to see Jesus removed. But Satan feared the cross because that was the weapon that Jesus used to destroy his kingdom. As Samson over the Philip sought as Samson sought to slay the Philistines by the jawbone of an ass. So Christ overcame Satan by his cross. Even in the midst of this plot, God confounded Satan by his own glory. Satan never frustrates the purpose and the plans of God. And we see here in our passage that this plot thickens. The time comes for the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God can use the most heinous sins for his own purpose and glory. We leave our text this morning with this reminder. That even under the schemes of Satan, that even under his plots, he can never thwart the purposes of God. Perhaps you've seen your own children walk in rebellion against the Lord. Perhaps you've seen in your own life the abandonment of your children to the things of this world and to Satan. But the work of the Lord Jesus Christ can never be thwarted. If Christ's death is applied to us, then the wrath of God will pass over us. 
and ours, and he satisfies his wrath against our sin. Here we delight to see that the Lord Jesus Christ gains all of the victory. And even in those temptations that he faced, he as the perfect man, he as the man with impeccable character, never failed in his purpose, never failed in what he set out to do, never sinned against God. And oh, let us be on guard continually against the work of Satan. He works in our families. Oh, trust me, he works quite well. Of course, always behind the scenes. He works in church meetings. I say this not with tongue in cheek, but in sincerity and seriousness. He works even within diaconal and session meetings. Satan works in presbytery meetings. Satan works in many ways. But here he enters into the heart of a man. And we need to be on guard that we don't expose ourselves, particularly those besetting sins, to the work of Satan. But as we leave this passage, let us leave with the reminder that in all of this, the purpose of God is, is seen in the suffering, death, and resurrection, and is all for His glory and for our salvation. And leave you with that passage from Ephesians chapter 3, and verse 10, that states that it is through the principalities and powers that the glory of God is displayed in the way of salvation. God's wisdom is displayed here. And as we see his wisdom, we take comfort and consolation that all things do work for his glory and for our good. So church, let us see the warning here. Let us pray as our confession of faith reminds us for one another that we would not fall. Let us pray for one another that we have a spirit of unity. Let us pray for one another that we would be kept from pride and from arrogance and from those things that leave us open to the subtleties of the evil one. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, we do give Thee thanks this morning for Thy glorious salvation and for what Thou has accomplished for us. Even in Your betrayal of a closest friend, we see the wonderful purpose and plan of God for the salvation of Thy people. O Lord, we pray that we might learn from this passage the lessons that we need to be on guard, even those of us who stand in those positions of authority within the church. O Lord, guard us against the evil one. And we pray that through this we might see the wonderful working of thy Spirit, even in those things that seem to be evil. 
Lord, bless the word that is preached today. And may it come with power and conviction upon our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.